Amen. Well, good morning and welcome to all of you. Welcome especially to the kids that are with us today on this Doodle Sunday. Kids, can I have your attention, please? Thank you. Uh, we're honored for you to be here, and uh, if you're here with us for the first time, I want to tell you, kids, that uh, we are delighted that you're here, and we believe that God wants you to be here. He wants, you to, he wants to show you some things about himself, and he wants to show you uh, that this is a place for you. Uh, but we do have a couple of rules. Does anyone remember our rules? No one does. Oh, there's one. Yes. You have to listen and be quiet or else you won't get a prize. All right. Well, that's the rule and the consequence and the reward in one. <laughs> Comprehensive. Yeah, so we do want to invite you kids to listen. Uh, we believe that God is speaking, through, especially through the reading of his scripture, uh, and you can't listen if you're talking. You also can't listen if you're getting up. So we'd like to ask you to remain in your seats. If you have a question, you can whisper it to a parent uh, in your ear, in their ear. And if they believe you've done a good job at these things, we do have a prize for you following the service. So I'm going to read from the passage that's printed and invite all of us now to listen with open ears as I read from this book, the one that we love. The reading today comes from Paul's letter to the Romans, chapter 12, verses 1 through 15. Hear now God's word. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy, in proportion to our faith. If serving, in our serving. The one who teaches, in his teaching. The one who exhorts, in his exhortation. The one who contributes, in generosity. The one who leads, with zeal the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. This is the word of the Lord. All right. Well, good morning and welcome again. So delighted to be with you. We are in a sermon series that we're about to wrap up that we're calling Lavish, Exploring the Riches of God's Grace. And this is our part two of our look at Romans 12. We did part one last week as I attempted to hack that out for you, not having a voice. 
But I want to talk to the kids for a second. Kids, I wonder if you think that I have the ability to know what goes on inside your home. Do, do I have the ability to know what goes on inside your home? Who thinks yes? Well, I do have the ability for you, especially. Um, more, yes, anyone else? Are there any skeptics here? Are any of you raising any skeptics? Okay, good job. Um, so I want to talk, let me talk to the skeptics then. Where's, where's our skeptics over here? All right. I want to tell, ask your parents the number one most repeated question that they are asked. Number one most repeated question. I bet you I can guess it. Who, you think I can guess it? Well, let's see if your parents are going to embarrass me here. Number one most repeated question in your house is why? Why, Dad? Why are we in church? <laughs> why can't I have what I want? Is that right? A little bit? What do you think? John? Yes? And when? Friendly amendment. I've heard it both ways. Um, yeah, so the most common question in, in our home, at least, and in, in others that I've talked to, is why? Any, any of you kids ask that question? Right? And you're saying, why do I ask that question? Well, we're going to tell you why. And friends, uh, that question is, I, I want to encourage that, uh, encourage you to continue and to always ask that question because it is at the core of what life is all about, this question of why. And the scripture loves to raise this question, asking it in this way. Why did God make you? Why are you here? For what purpose are you destined? Right? That is, the big, that is the why that covers all other whys that we might ask. And the passage here explores a bit of that answer. As Paul is uh, turning his attention, he's been expounding God's work in the universe, headed, uh, summarized under this category of mercy. He's saying God has been more merciful than you can possibly imagine. In fact, at the end of chapter 11, just prior to our passage today, he says he's shut up everyone under sin so that he can show mercy to everyone. It's one of the most mind-blowing uh, statements in all of Scripture. And he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God or in view of the mercies of God. And then he lays out what a response to that mercy looks like. And friends, this does get at the most core purpose that we have. In fact, uh, Rick, uh, Rick Warren says it this way. He says, life will not make sense to you until you understand that you have been created by God and for God. That God made you, that God made you and that he made you for himself. And that is expressed under this word that's called worship. So at the heart of Christian teaching is the purpose of God for his people summarized in the language of worship. And friends, as we think about this, I want to contrast it just briefly with uh, other views of uh, who God is and what we're here for. So for example, in Islam, I think, it, I think it's safe to say, if you were to believe in Islam, it would go something like this. You must live in this way. You must do these things. And if you do them, God will be happy with you. 
God will do well to you. You will have a reward waiting for you. But Christian teaching, on the other hand, couldn't be more different. As Paul says, look at the mercy, look at the lavishness that you already have received that is guaranteed for you in heaven, that is not a result of any work. And now in response to that, worship in this way. Do you see the difference? Islam, do so that God will be happy with you. On the other hand, Christianity, God is more happy with you than you could possibly imagine and therefore respond to him in worship. And we looked at that last week. We looked at uh, what Paul is bringing out, that there is a kind of worship that is only accessible as a response to understanding the richness of how God thinks of you in Jesus Christ. And, you know, if we look in Scripture, we can see that the most powerful responses to God are always in the context of his mercy. So, for example, there was a man who was possessed by a whole horde of of, uh, demons, right? Jesus comes to him. He's out of his mind. He's, you know, ridiculously crazy, and Jesus heals him. And this man says, I want to follow you. I want to go wherever you go. And Jesus says, no, you have to stay here. Right? You're not to follow me right now. You're to stay here, and you have work to do here. And Jesus will come back to that island, and better part of the island is now ready to hear the gospel because of this man's testimony. Right? Why? Because this man had a profound experience, profound uh, coming together with God's mercy. If you've known someone uh, in your lifetime, in your friends or family, who was not a Christian and then became a Christian, right, or perhaps for you, when you were not a Christian, then you became a Christian. Some of the most powerful experiences of your life happen right at that moment, don't they? Right? If you see someone who's recently a Christian, that person has a power to them right? that that's some, some of us actually long to get back to. Right? Maybe that's you. Right? Someone who becomes a Christian often has the most power. Why? Because the mercy of God is so fresh in their experience that it provokes the kind of response described in this passage. And so what we're up to here in this sermon series is I'm trying to help us all, myself uh, included, become reacquainted with God's mercy. And what I'm looking at today is this question of a response. What might it look like for you? Right? Maybe you've been a Christian for seven years. Maybe you've been a Christian for 37 years. What might it look like for you to become reacquainted with God's mercy? Answer what Paul says here this morning. He says, if you are viewing the mercies of God, that's the NIV version, which I prefer. He said, I want to exhort you to respond in this way. Now, kids, I wonder if anyone here knows, wonder if anyone here knows, what does a butterfly look like before it's pretty? All right, young man, it's a caterpillar, right? Now, is a caterpillar a symbol of great beauty in the world? Actually, yes. Well, depends on your definition of that, but most, most kids would probably say no, right? What happens? Does that, to, all right, here's the challenge question. Here's the challenge question for the kid that answered this. What, it, what is it called when the caterpillar becomes a butterfly? You know what that's called? What? Transformation? You're actually pretty close. Young man. Metamorphosis. 
Now, why was, why was coal gas so close, right? You know more than you think, young man, because in our passage it says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Transformed in Greek is, Dr. Andriotis? Metamorphe, right? That's what it means, right? So when scientists decided to capture the kind of change that goes on from being a caterpillar to being a butterfly, they use the same word that Paul uses here to describe the kind of change that takes place in a person who begins to understand God's mercy and then undergoes the kind of response contained in this passage. It's transforming, right? It's a metamorphosis of sorts. And Paul describes it here under three categories, and I'm going to just go through these briefly uh, to try to cover this in the short time that we have. He says, when you respond to God's mercy, you will see that show up in these three categories. Number one, your mind. Number two, your body. Number three, your heart or your emotional life. So let's look at it under these three headings together. Number one, your mind. And Paul says this, he says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And what Paul is accessing here, it's actually important to see this. If you, if you know the book of Romans, some of you I, I know know it far better than I do. If you know the book of Romans, you know that Romans starts out as the most depressing book in all of Scripture, in chapter 1, where it talks about man's fall into sin. And what will happen is, if you read chapter 1 next to chapter 12, you'll notice that uh, these themes come up over and over again, stated negatively in 1, positively in 12. So for example, in chapter 1, let me quote it for you. Uh, chapter 1, verse 21, it says, Although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks. And then it says this, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. So in Paul's theology, when sin enters the world, there is a kind of foolishness that comes with it that is expressed in the way that we live ignorantly of God, or the word that he uses is that where we suppress what God is trying to tell us. And therefore, when we have an experience with God's mercy, when it comes, smacks us right in the head, and it says, Darren, I love you not because you did anything good this week. In fact, I could give you a quite extensive list of all of the things that you've done that are not good, and all of the things that you've not done that you should have done that are good. You haven't loved your neighbor as yourself. You haven't loved me. You haven't been faithful in all sorts of things. And yet, I am delighted in you. When that begins to click, Paul says this. He says, you respond in a kind of worship whereby your thinking changes whereby your mind is renewed. And we'll see this confirmed as we go to the next point, especially. What Paul is presenting to us is a reversal of what happens in chapter 1. It's a reversal. And Paul says uh, something very helpful here. Uh, he says, as you offer your minds to God, what you have is you have the ability now to know God's will. Now, 
this is probably the number one question us pastors receive, okay? So I'm just going to like, I'm just going to cut a huge workload out of my life. I'm going to go, you know, live on the beach somewhere, okay? Huge workload out of my life. I'm just going to like settle it right now. All the time, I get folks coming to me saying, Pastor, I just don't know what God's will is for me right now. Can you help me understand what God's will is for me? I'm so confused. I don't know what it is. Well, friends, here it is. Paul says this, present your minds to God for transformation. He says, and you'll be able to discern the will of God. You'll be able to test and know what's good to him, right? So I won't have a job anymore, right? I'll be on an unemployment or something, but that's okay. Um, but in all seriousness, what Paul is saying here is this, right? If you want to know God, right? And I'm, and I'm being a little facetious here, but if you want to know God, if you want to understand what he thinks, if you want to know what he thinks about you and for you, what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect, he says, you can access that through this thing called transformation, through this idea called renewal. And friends, um, if you are like me wanting to reconnect with the scripture this year in a more powerful way, I want to present this to you as a motivating reason why, right? I'm not going to take a poll of how many of you here are sitting here and you're not satisfied with either the amount of which you read the scriptures or with the experience itself, with the power received. Some of you are here, no doubt, in this room, and you were dissatisfied with that. Perhaps the majority of us are, right? But how do we think about that? Well, what Paul is urging us here this morning is saying, think about the scriptures, approach the scriptures, not to check off a box in your life, but for the opportunity to be renewed, to be transformed, to begin to know God's will in ways that you don't presently. And when you do that, you will, like the caterpillar, undergo a metamorphosis of sorts. So kids, what I want you to do is draw yourself, a picture of yourself, reading the Bible and thinking about how much you love God. And you can show this with a thought bubble. Okay? All right. Now, it's interesting. Um, one of the conversations that uh, I've had with a number of folks who don't believe as we do, don't believe in Christianity, as they say, well, you know, Darren, um, I can't believe in God because there's all these scientific reasons that suggest that, you know, he's not real. For example, if he were real, then the miracles that we read about in Scripture, I would, I would have some of them, right? That's one common objection. Uh, another one is saying, well, you know, there's all this suffering in the world. There's all this darkness. There's all this injustice. And if God is real, then surely he would not have any part of this. And one of the things that we've discussed goes back to, uh, to a discussion that goes like this. You are basing your assumptions about God on the belief that you know how the world ought to run. Right? That's what you're saying. You're saying, I know how the world ought to run. It ought to look this way. Right? If I were designing it, it would look exactly like I'm saying. But here's the problem. Right? If God is real, if he exists, then by definition, you are not him. Right? And therefore, by definition, for you to try to say and assert how God ought to be is in itself an inherent contradiction. 
And so if God is real, if he exists, and if he has taken the time to communicate who he is to us, then the only place that we can start is by putting ourselves under what he says about himself. Right? Maybe God has reasons for the way that he has designed and operates in this world that just maybe are beyond what Darren might think or might do. Maybe he's smarter than me. Right? Maybe he knows things that I don't know. Maybe he has a perspective that I don't have. Right? It's a conversation I've had with you know, some philosophers and it's been a really fruitful dialogue. And it actually has uh, set some folks back to say, you know what, you're right. I do believe what I believe based on these assumptions. And I don't have any reason to say that those are better than your assumptions. So we've gotten there. We haven't gotten past there yet, but that's where we've gotten. And friends, that's the kind of thing that happens when you undergo this kind of transformation. You begin to think differently because you begin to approach your life with a humility that says, maybe I don't know best. Maybe I need to put myself under what God has revealed. And the scripture calls that transformation. So that's the first thing. We present our minds to God to be transformed. The second thing that he says, and this might be a little surprising to you, he says this, we present our bodies to God, right? That actually comes first. I'm doing it in a little bit reverse order. But look at verse 1. He says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present what? Your bodies to him. Now, if you've grown up in Christian circles, you are going to have a hard time believing this. I just want to tell you, okay? If you've grown up in Christian church or camps or other places, you're going to have a hard time believing this because this has been a deficiency, frankly, in the church's teaching in recent times, right? Actually, all the way back to the early church uh, in an era called Gnosticism, whereby there was a view that said, you know, God really doesn't care about your body, only cares about your mind, only cares about your spirit. You know, in fact, the body is kind of like only there for bad things, right? But the scripture couldn't disagree uh, more strongly because Paul here says, you know what? No. Your body is of profound importance to God. In fact, in the letter uh, to the Romans, the body occupies a point of emphasis where he says, you know what, we groan inwardly, this is chapter 8, as we await eagerly the redemption of our bodies. We long for that. That's essential to what God is doing. And here in chapter 12, he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to do what? To present your bodies to God. God. Now, I'm going to try to explain what that is, but I want to help set this up for you. I've said that the church has had this as kind of a deficiency in its teaching. I do believe that. You're welcome to talk with me about it afterwards, if you like. I would also say this, that the body in our present day is one of the most controversial things in all of our culture. Okay, The body is one of the most controversial topics in all of our cultures. So for example, uh, if you've uh, heard any of this debate and discussion around policies related to transgender identity, right? You might think, you know, this is a powerful thing, right? This is a powerful topic that is going out. In fact, some states are even saying, I, I heard recently, some states are either, even suggesting laws that say, you know, if a parent denies an underage child, 
right? The ability to identify as someone of the opposite gender, that that parent could lose their parental rights. This is a, an idea being considered. This is how powerful this topic is, right? And it's interesting. I have a, a, someone very close to me who's identified as uh, same-sex attraction for a long time, for more than 20 years, and they are even shocked. He is even shocked by the degree to which this topic is being presented by those uh, promoting it in our culture. He's saying, this is just shocking to me that you know, folks would do this, right? So that's one area in our culture where the body is the primary battleground, okay? It's this issue of gender. There's a second area, though, and I wonder if any of you know about this, right? That's the issue of what we call body shame, or on the other side, body worship. So this is a profoundly uh, huge industry, all related around uh, diets and oils and all sorts of things uh, that can give you the kind of body you want or can remove the shame that you feel. And why is this the case? Well, this passage would suggest to us that the body is a central battleground in our day because the issue that's contained in it is the issue of worship. Right? Make no mistake, these debates about gender, this multi-billion dollar industry that is feeding off of both body shame and body worship, they all find their power in the ability for the body to be an instrument of worship. That's where they find their power, right? And that's what Paul is actually saying here. He's saying, yes, that's exactly right. God has given you bodies, verse 1, so that you might worship him through your body. It's a factor of worship. It's interesting, one, one uh, theologian had this to say. He said, the human body includes right from the beginning the capacity of expressing love, that love in which the person becomes a gift, and by means of this gift fulfills the meaning of his being in existence. You hear that? He's saying God has given you bodies so that you can use them for him, so that you can yourself be a gift. And it's interesting because in this passage, Paul uses language that sounds eerily like that, doesn't he? He says, um, in verse 4, he says, For as in uh, one body we have many members, and all the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. And then listen in verse 6, having what? gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. What Paul is saying is this, when you present yourself to God to undergo the kind of change from the caterpillar to the butterfly, changes the way you think, also changes the way that you use everything that you have, including your own self, right? Instead of worshiping the body, for example, the body becomes a gift to be used in the service to God and for the blessing of others. And that's how you ought to understand service, by the way, in God's kingdom, right? That God has made you uniquely, that he has designed you particularly, that he has gifted you in ways that others are not gifted, that he has gifted others in ways that you are not gifted, so that you could find your purpose, your meaning, in a life lived of worship to him, expressed in service to others.
Do you see that here in this passage? All right, since we have gifts that differ, let us use them. And he goes on to show how to do that. So that's the second thing. We have the mind, and then we have the body. And so kids, what I want you to do is draw a picture of yourself serving the Lord in a way that you like. Right? So for example, helping your mom, or talking to a new friend at recess, or helping your brother or sister with their homework. The last thing that Paul will uh, get into here in our passage, and I'm summarizing from a very big picture, uh, is our heart and our emotions. And we see this here uh, in uh, verse 10. It says, love one another with a brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. And then he will say down in verse 15, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Now, what is Paul getting at? And what might a kind of metamorphosis look like in the area of your heart, in the area of your emotional life? Well, I'm going to tell you. You see, the design of God is that when you have this kind of experience with him that is described as mercy, that is described as realizing more than you ever have, that he is far more delighted with you than you possibly know through Jesus Christ, that he accepts you more than you realize, that your sins are so completely forgiven, that as far as the east is the west, they're separated from you, that once you begin to realize that, he says it changes the way that you care for your own heart. What do I mean by that? Well, I think verse 15 suggests to us what that means, where it says, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. You see, Paul has in view here a certain kind of relationship that he envisions as being essential to the church, whereby you trust other people with the real you so that if you are weeping, they will weep with you, right? If, if they are weeping, if they are, there's something really severe going on inside that you can't help but weep, right? You probably have felt this with your family, by the way. You get a call from a family member, right? Cancer is uttered. What happens? You feel something inside, right? You feel a piece of their burden because your heart is knit to them. And you can't help it. It's not like you have to do this. You don't have to work hard to do this. It just happens because of the depth of the relationship. Because there is enough history and time there whereby you say, boy, I'm hurting at the news of this. Or boy, on the other hand, I am celebrating God's goodness to you. And what Paul is envisioning here in the church are the kind of relationships that are categorized by trusting others enough so that you are vulnerable. Right? Sort of the recipe for deep friendship, by the way. When I um, talk to folks, and maybe some of you are you know, in this place, and you're saying, Darren, I just don't connect with anyone. Right? And I want you to know, when I hear that, I take that really seriously, because I long and desire this community to be a place of deep connection. Right? And so if that's not happening for you, I care very much about that, and I long to see it happen. How does it happen? Well. Deep connection can only happen when you put your guard down enough so that you can be hurt. Sort of like the recipe for it. And I say, I'll say to you, some of you have heard me say this, I'll say, understand though, if you do that, you might be hurt, right? I, I can't promise you you won't. In fact, I can say, 
it might happen, or maybe even it's likely to happen. And you have to decide, are you going to take that risk, or are you going to go into the safe place and put up a wall, and no one will ever penetrate that? Well, you can, but then you will have the loneliness of isolation. But Paul here envisions a community of people for whom the walls come down. You have a closeness with one another that does make them vulnerable, right? Whereby you, whereby you might share the real you with someone else, and they may not treat, they might not steward that information well, right? But Paul, nonetheless, believes that this is like this is what God's transformation involves. Why? Well, the only reason can be because when you are transformed by the love of God that it makes you so confident in his love that you're willing to take risks with others. Or, put another way, when you have an experience with the mercy of God, where you begin to realize that, my goodness, I am so much more messed up than actually I knew. You know, people that criticize me, they're like only a hundredth right. (laughs) It's far worse than they're saying. I have far more many problems than my biggest critic is alleging, right? There's a small time here. When I look at the cross, when I look at what God has done in Jesus Christ, I realize, my goodness, I am far more broken and flawed than I actually know at this moment. And when you do that, right, it opens you up. It enables you to receive uh, criticisms from other people, to be the real you, saying, you know what, you might not steward this well, you might even be wrong, but I'm pretty sure that you can never outdo what God has done in Jesus Christ. You can outdo the kind of criticism that comes with the cross. And then on the other hand, you say, you know what, because I'm so deeply loved by God, because my identity is found in what he has done for me, I can take risks to love you. I can take risks to walk with you. I can take risks to share with you what I'm really feeling, believing that if I have a season of weeping, that you'll weep with me. If I have a season of rejoicing, you'll rejoice with me. And that's what Paul says is here is uh, inclusive in this idea of metamorphosis. This idea of transformation means that you begin to have the kinds of relationships with others that necessarily involves taking risks. So kids, I want you to draw a picture of people happy and smiling because they just received a gift. Draw yourself happy and smiling with them. And then secondly, draw a picture of people who are sad. Perhaps their dog ran away. That would be sad. I had a nightmare about our pet last night, and it was really sad. Um, Draw yourself sad and crying with them. Now, friends, I want to wrap this up. Why would God set this up this way? The renewal of your mind, the renewal of your body, and the renewal of your your heart. Well, friends, the only answer can be because as we experience those things, you see, God doesn't need us to live in this way. He doesn't need anything from us, but he invites us to respond to him in this way. Why? Because as we respond to him in this way, as we fulfill the purpose that he has for us, we begin to learn some things about his son that we would not learn otherwise. Right? You see, the Lord Jesus offered his mind to God. He was able to discern God's will, even though that will would be for him so much more suffering than has ever been experienced in human history. The Lord Jesus offered his body to God, not simply to to be presented in the use of his gifts, but in his case, to be presented literally. 
to receive a profoundly horrific punishment and shame that he experienced on the cross. And lastly, the Lord Jesus offered his heart. He welcomed sinners to come close to him, including one he knew would betray him. One of the most difficult things in ministry is experiencing heartbreak. But Jesus did life with Judas. There was no doubt they would pray together, and yet he knew all the time Jesus offered his heart in service to God so that you might be accepted by God and so that you might likewise have the freedom to offer yourself in this way. Friends, I want to challenge us as a community to make steps to move toward this this year. Let me pray for you. Lord Jesus, we praise you. Holy Spirit, we adore you. And Lord, I pray uh, that you would transform my heart, my mind, and my life. I pray that you would do that for us here and for our children together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As the music's team coming up, I want to give the kids one last drawing. I want you to draw a picture of the cross, and at the foot of the cross, draw people who are sad, needy, and even angry. And then draw a heart around them and the cross, because Christ died even for these.